Well, we are starting a brand new series today called Esther. Uh, my name is Jason. I'm the teaching pastor uh, on staff here at the church. We're so excited um, that you're here and that you survived the flood of 2013. Um, hey, you made it, so you're here today, and we're excited about that. You could have gone anywhere. Um, you could have gone nowhere, but you decided to come here, and so that's a big deal to us. Um, I think my favorite kind of preaching or teaching that I do, if you spend any time around the church here an extended period of time, periodically we will just, just stop kind of what we're doing theme-wise, topic-wise, and we'll just kind of go through uh, a book of the Bible. And that is my favorite kind of teaching, favorite kind of preaching. Most ministers, most teachers probably feel that way. Um, but I have so enjoyed uh, prepping uh, and kind of preparing for this series on Esther. Um, you've heard me say this a lot. I've said it leading up to this series. But there are times when you're preparing for messages and you're reading the Bible to kind of find the answer to the problem you're trying to present and solve as a, you know, as a presenter. Um, and then there are other times when you're studying and you're having church all by yourself and you're just, God's just speaking to you and, and, and kind of not, yes, you're going to share it with the people, but God's really giving it to you for you and you're, and you're being blessed by it. And so that's what Esther has been uh, for me. And, um, and so, man, just really excited uh, to be starting this series today. So what we're going to do over the next six weeks is we're going to dive into the book of Esther and read about a guy named Mordecai and a girl named Esther who are going about their everyday lives, and, and by God's great design, they are going to become two of the most powerful people in the most powerful empire in the world. Now, just quick survey. Don't feel bad if you don't raise your hand. That's okay. But how many of you in here have ever read the book of Esther? Let me see your hand if you've read the book of Esther. Maybe 60% or so have read the book of Esther. Um, it is, it's a famous story. Uh, they've had movies made about it, but it's also kind of a controversial uh, book to people who kind of study and dive into a lot of these things. Um, and we're going to find that Esther is a different kind of book from other stories in the Bible. It's really, it's kind of highly controversial. It's a debated book because the heroes in the story of Esther are not your typical uh, Bible heroes, right? Um, and so as we read this story, those of us who are, are more conservative or uh, religious um, will struggle. Maybe this is why God has, has been kind of impacting me so much in this book, but we're going to kind of struggle and wrestle with just how gray the book of Esther is. And when I say gray, I'm talking about how right and wrong in this story are much harder to identify than most other Bible stories, right? And we like stories, like if we're Christians, Christ followers, church people, we love stories like Samson, right? Where a guy keeps compromising. We don't like that he's compromising, but we like the fact that he keeps compromising and finally because he's made, you know, Wrong decisions. God doesn't bless him anymore. And, and it just, that seems about right. Makes sense, right? That's kind of, Samson, you know, we don't want to sound like a jerk, but Samson kind of got what he deserved is what we kind of feel when we read that. Or We like stories where Jonah disobeys God, runs away from God, so he gets swallowed up by a will. We go, yeah, that kind of makes sense right there. You know, God disobeys God, gets swallowed up by a will, right? But Esther's not that kind of story. As a matter of fact, the name of God is not mentioned one time in the whole book. Did you know that? That the, the name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, right? 
Not only that, but the author of Esther, which we don't know who it is, we have no idea who wrote it, we feel like, they feel like it was written maybe a, a good bit of time after it actually happened. We don't know who wrote it. And when they wrote it, they gave us no insight into the motives or the character or um, why, the, why they did what they did. Like the character. We don't, we don't know any of that. But the author who wrote the book gives us no name of God, no motives, no character, nothing. We don't know. Right? We just don't know. And the author leaves it up to us to decide why Esther and Mordecai did what they did. And it just makes the book kind of gray, right? Historically, lots of people have had a problem with the fact that the name of God is not mentioned in the story. But I, I kind of like it. I, mean, I, tend to be, I tend to be a little bit of a contrarian anyway. But I, I kind of like the fact that the name of God is not mentioned in the story. That there, there's this silence, there's this ambiguity... I like that because I feel like it's, it's a powerful part of the message. And, and I, I guess here's why. Because if you've ever felt like God wasn't around in your life, right? Or, or maybe you felt like it's been a long time since God, um, like you felt some type of connection to God. Or maybe your life is feeling very gray. That you're faced with decisions in your life right now and the Bible doesn't clearly give you a thou shalt not or thou shalt go for it. You know, we don't have any of those or we just, we're not, we're not sure. Maybe, maybe we're in relationships and it just feels great and we don't know what to do. Well, if you've ever felt that way or maybe life feels that way right now, Esther, the story of Esther gives us hope that even when God seems absent and life feels very ordinary or maybe life even feels unspiritual. God is still working behind the scenes. And listen, just for me personally, if I can just kind of share my junk a little bit. The last 45 days, real, well, up until about two weeks ago, the, the previous 45 days felt very ordinary and unspiritual for me. I was in what I would classify as one of the deepest spiritual ruts of my life. Kind of coming off a high down into the depths of the valley. My life for about two months almost felt very unspiritual. But what we're going to find is that in the middle of this story that feels very ordinary and day-to-day and unspiritual, that God is still working behind the scenes. He's still working behind the scenes. Esther is going to show us that God is at work in an entirely different way. And I guess that's probably why I like the story so much. See, like in the book of Exodus, God's work is all thunder and lightning, right? You ever seen the movie with uh, Charlton Heston, you know? And it's like, it's just, it's, it's, it's big voices and lightning and thunder and, you know, raining bread and rock water. And I mean, it's just, the story of Exodus has, you know, it's got dramatic interventions. It's got... Uh, heroes like Moses and Aaron to lead people and great miracles, and right? But not in Esther. In this story, God is much more behind the scenes. He's much more ambiguous. And maybe like you and me, these characters in this story, maybe they feel like that life is day-to-day or that God isn't working or their decisions don't really make much of a difference. Well... We're going to start reading today in Esther chapter 1, the very first verse of Esther chapter 1. If you want to go find that, it's kind of in the middle of the Old Testament, so to speak. Um, 
Just kind of flip through there with your thumb real fast until you see it. Um, but we're going to start at Esther chapter 1. But before we get there, I'm going to meet you there in a second. But before we get there, I want to give you a quick history lesson. Uh, I'm going to take you back to school just a little bit, give you a quick little history lesson. So today when you're at lunch with your friends and you're talking Jewish history, you will win the Jeopardy competition, okay? Just to, I know you do that at lunch, barbecue and Jewish history. So you're going to be ready today um, with the answers, all right? So here's kind of a little history lesson for you. For hundreds of years, okay, God's people had lived in the promised land. You know, Moses leading them out. Joshua, God gets them in the promised land. And they had established their lives, and they had kings, and they had laws, and they had even built a temple for God. David wants to build a temple. His son, Solomon, ends up building it. And they, he, he, he ends up building this temple, and it is the most amazing piece of architecture ever built. I mean, when they built this thing, they spared no expense. God laid out every detail that, that he wanted, how he wanted it built, exactly how he wanted it. And after Solomon has built the temple, God and King Solomon have a conversation. And God tells Solomon how much he loves the temple and how he's going to continue to bless Solomon and bless the Israelites. But he also made another promise to Solomon, God did, in 1 Kings chapter 9. You don't need to flip there. It's going to be up on the screen, but I want to read this to you because it's going to help us where we're going. 1 Kings chapter 9, God, conversation with Solomon, this is what he says. He says, but if you and your descendants turn away from me, And do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. And all who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, Because they have forsaken the Lord their God who brought their ancestors out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. So God makes a promise to Israel that if you will stay faithful to me, I will continue to bless you, right? But if you break my commands and you worship other gods, I'm going to take all of this away from you. Well, you probably know how the story goes because it's, Pretty typical pattern of the Jews in the Old Testament. Things don't go so well. Like you and me, they, they struggle with prosperity. And they begin to worship other gods. And they begin to marry spouses from other nations. Exactly like God had told them not to do. Not to do. And so finally, after God had seen all he could take, he, uh, he comes through on his promise. And the Babylonians attack Jerusalem, Right? They attack Jerusalem, and they capture everybody, and they burn the city, and they destroy the temple, okay? It was, it was the worst possible scenario for the Israelites. They have lost the most prized possession that they have in the temple that they built for God, and the loss and the loss of the city and the land and the temple represented that God was through with them. At least that's how they felt. So about 90 years later, after they've lost the battle, there's a king named Darius, And Darius decided to let the Jews return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. This is is good. Everything's kind of, we're kind of rallying now and everything is is happening. Now they would still be Babylonian citizens, but they could at least have their life and their culture back. And so the Jews pack up and they head back to Jerusalem. Well, most of them headed back to Jerusalem. Um, Some of them decided to stay where they were. Um, and live under the, the Persian Empire, which, and live under the Babylonian culture, I guess you could say. 
So the Jews who go back to Jerusalem to kind of rebuild the temple, have their culture back, kind of feel like God's people. And, and they view the Jews who stay where they are as outcasts and as sellouts. I mean, they had the chance to move back, and, and, they, and they didn't. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it, right? And so there's, there's two kind of groups of God followers happening here in the story, right? So King Darius dies, and his son, King Xerxes, takes over. You may have heard of Xerxes. If you've seen the movie 300, which I don't recommend, by the way, so don't go home and watch that and say, hey, Jason said I should watch it. No, I didn't, right? But if you've ever seen that movie 300, then you, you know King Xerxes. He was the weird-looking dude with the, the gold thing with the nose to the ear. That, that, that's King Xerxes. And what's happening in the story of Esther is exactly during the time period of that movie um, 300, right? So now King Xerxes is in charge. Darius' dad is gone. Some Jews are in Jerusalem, and they're, they feel like they're the real, the true, the real deal Jews. Some other Jews have stayed where they are, and they are viewed as the sellouts, the, the, you know, the ones who don't really love God. And that brings us to Esther chapter 1, now that you're prepared for Jewish trivia. Okay? So here we go. Esther chapter 1. And I'm actually going to read this out of the message translation because um, it, it kind of reads more storyteller. So, um, and it'll be up on the screen in that translation as well. So uh, this is what it says in verse 1. It says, This is the story of something that happened in the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all. King Xerxes ruled from his royal throne in the palace complex of Susa. So um, I almost went totally nerdy on you and got like maps out and everything. But we're not going there today. All you need to know is... This is considered the world. These 127 provinces, Middle East area, King Xerxes rules the world. It's the most powerful empire in, in, in all the world, okay? In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his officials and ministers. The military brass of Persia and media were also there, along with the prince and the governors of the provinces. For six months, he put on an exhibit of huge wealth, of, with the huge wealth of his empire, and its stunning, stunningly beautiful royal splendors. At the conclusion of the exhibit, the king threw a week-long party for everyone living in Susa, the capital, important and unimportant alike. The party was in the garden courtyard of the king's summer house. The courtyard was elaborately decorated with white and blue cotton curtains tied with linen and purple cords to silver rings and marble columns. Silver and gold couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of uh, whatever that word is, marble, mother of pearl, and colored stones. Drinks were served in gold cups, each cup one of a kind. The royal wine flowed freely. So in other words, they just want you to know with all this description, in other words, that this is the party of parties. This is six month and a week long. Every gold cup is different. They're sitting on gold couches, walking on gold streets. You're supposed to feel like that when you're reading this, that this is the greatest party, greatest city, most powerful wealth wealthy empire ever, right? That's what's happening. That's the description that's been given. The guests could drink as much as they like. Now, how many people have ever been to a Louisville tailgate where people started drinking around 11 a.m. and the game kicked off about six or seven? How many people know it was a little crazy? Okay, they've been drinking six months, all right? Six-month tailgate is just think that, think that, okay? So they could drink as much as they want, with waiters at their elbows to refill the drinks. Meanwhile, Queen Vashti was throwing a separate party for women inside King Xerxes' royal palace. So that makes it even worse, right? It's a six-month tailgate with only guys. So this is just awful. So um, on the seventh day of the party, the king, high on the wine, 
ordered the seven eunuchs who were his personal servants to bring him Queen Vashti, resplendent in her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the guests and to the officials. She was extremely good-looking. But Queen Vashti refused to come, refused the summons delivered by the eunuchs. The king lost his temper, seething with anger over her insolence. The king called in his counselors, all experts in legal matters. So we're going to stop right there for a second. The story starts off by showing us this incredible power and wealth of the Persian Empire, right? King Xerxes is throwing a six-month party for all his leaders, and he's actually throwing this six-month party. He's called in all the important people, the decision-makers, because he's having a war council. Uh, he wants to go to war with the Greeks, and he's, he's bringing them in, and his idea here is that he'll get them drunk, he'll show them how wealthy he is, how powerful he is, and then he'll go, hey, how many people want to go to war with me? And they'll be like, yeah, so he's, he's, kind of, he's got an agenda to this party. Get him together, get him drunk, show off his wealth. And then the cherry on top of all of it is that he's going to bring his hot queen Vashti out to do a little, little dance, a little shimmy for the guys uh, who have been drinking for six months, right? Some scholars, some historians say that he was asking Queen Vashti to come out wearing her crown and nothing else and do a dance, a little strip dance for them. We can't prove that. Some people say that, some people don't, just because of a lot of, a lot of different stuff. But Queen Vashti says no. She's not going to do it, right? We don't know why she says no. We don't know. We don't, the author doesn't give us any motive, anything behind all this. She just decides not to do it. And what's eventually going to happen to Vashti is she is going to be thrown out of the palace. Her crown is going to be taken for her. And there's going to be an opening to become the next queen of the Persian Empire, right? This description of everything that happened at the beginning of the story further solidifies how the, the Jews in Jerusalem felt about the Babylonian culture already. You remember that history lesson I gave you, and you got two groups of Jews, right? Well, the Jews who are over in Jerusalem watching Fox News know everything happening over here in Susa, right? And they're having a six-month party, and they're drinking, and they're, I mean, it's crazy in Susa. What happens in Susa stays in Susa, Right? And so the Jews over in Jerusalem, they're like, can you believe what's happening over there? Can you believe what's going on over there? Those people, they're so evil, they're so this, they're so that, and they cannot believe. But they know that there are also Jews, God's chosen people, God's followers who are living in Susa. They can only assume that they are fully immersed in this Babylonian culture that these Jews in Jerusalem are trying to get away from. Is everybody still with me? Right? Okay, hopefully you are. All right, we'll keep going. So the Jews look at Susa and they think, that's despicable, right? Sex-crazed, power-hungry, drunken, pleasure-seeking life, right? This Persian lifestyle. And so it makes sense, maybe, to some of us that they would view those Jews who chose to stay as compromising, sellouts maybe, right? And as Christians, I think if we're trying to take something away from this, the Jews were God's chosen people, we're Christ's followers, we're God's people. As Christians, we can be pretty bad about this, can't we? Not all of us maybe, but, but a lot of us can be pretty bad about this. Those of us who have spent most of our lives in church tend to always want to size up other believers, don't we? We want to question their morals and, and question their actions. We assume that everyone who loves Jesus would want to live in the Christian bubble that we create, right? We assume that, that they should vote how we vote. They assume, they assume that, that we assume that they should watch what we watch. 
We assume that they shouldn't do anything that, that you know, we deem wrong. Don't we do that? Aren't we guilty of doing that? That someone says, yeah, I'm a Christian, and we do like a 15-second inventory of everything we know about them to decide if they really are a Christian, right? Don't we do that? We don't say it out loud, but like we have a computer in our head. It's like, no, they're lying. They're not really the real deal. Maybe I'm the only one who does that, right? Anybody in here ever watch an award show? And some guy gets up and wins an award and goes, I want to thank Jesus Christ, my Lord and personal Savior. And you think, I just heard his last song on the radio. He can't sing that and be a Christian. Just me? Anybody? Okay, just me. All right, that's okay. I got issues. I'm sorry. But there's this thing inside of all of us. It's like, size them up and figure out if they're the real deal. Mm-hmm. The irony of the story of Esther is that one of those compromising sellout, so to speak, Jews living in Susa is going to save all of the Jews stuck inside of the bubble. That God is going to actually use Esther and Mordecai over here in this Persian lifestyle to save all the people who are in Jerusalem and, and all the Jews in other, other regions. The author of Esther doesn't tell us if they were right or wrong for feeling this way. Maybe the people who lived over here were compromising sellouts. We don't know. We don't know if they were right to feel this way. We don't know if if Esther and Mordecai um, compromised their beliefs or not. But we're left with this tension struggling to know whether or not Mordecai and Esther are sellouts or incredibly smart and strategic, right? All we know is that we have two people who are living in a place that is not their home, who are blending in and being set up by God to make a huge, huge difference. Now, not always, not always, but sometimes the safe place or the Christian place is not where God wants you to be. Did you know that? That sometimes in our attempt to run towards safety or the safe place or, you know, the, 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 the bubble, the Christian culture, that sometimes that that's not the place that God has for you or that God wants you to be. Sometimes you can't reach the people that you need to reach or have the influence that you need to have as long as you expect everyone else to come onto your turf, Right? There are movie stars and athletes and politicians and professors and business women, men and women all over the world that love Jesus with all their heart. Did you know there are Christians who work in the White House and are Democrats? Did you know that? Sure enough, they're in there. They are in there. And they love Jesus with all of their heart. Right? And they are occupying their, their part of the world that God has assigned them to. Acts chapter 17 tells us around 15 and 20 when Paul is, is talking to the believers in Athens. He says, look, that God doesn't live in temple, uh, temples built by hands, but that he, uh, he appoints man's times and boundaries so that some may reach out for him and find them. In other words, what we get from Acts 17 is that God sometimes says to people, well, all the time, but sometimes to certain people, he says, I want to put you to occupy this square of life. And all of us Christians in the bubble in Jerusalem, 
always eating at Chick-fil-A and stuff like that. Nothing wrong with Chick-fil-A. I love my little chicken. I wish they were open on Sundays. But you know what I'm saying? It's like we, we look at them and we say, man, they're not the real deal. They're sellouts. They're compromising. They're, right? But they're occupying their turf that God has put them on. And we're making judgment calls about their morality or how they could claim to be Christians and be a part of that. How could they claim to be a Christian and be in that movie and, 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 and read that script? Or how could they do that song? Or how could they be friends with that person or work with that politician? Or how could they do that? And we're making judgment calls all about their morality. And the book of Esther, the setup to the book of Esther, is a sobering reminder to those of us in the bubble, those of us in the bubble, to stop making moral judgment calls about those outside the bubble and to pray for them and to encourage them and to help them to live in Susa, so to speak, while we play it safe in Jerusalem. Their, their methods, their ways won't feel right to us. They won't feel uh, godly to us. The, the, the things that they do, it, it, it will feel different. Sometimes it will feel compromising. Sometimes it will feel very mediocre or watered down. But we don't know. We don't know. Unless they're saved in our phone book and our phone, we don't know them well enough to know. All we know is that they claim to know Jesus and love him with all their heart, and they're occupying the turf that God has given them. Right? So Vashti gets kicked to the curb. Xerxes is going to go off and lose a three-year battle against the Greeks and come home. He's going to have no queen, and he's going to need somebody to give him a little TLC on his wounds for losing that three-year battle. And so flip over to Esther chapter 2. We're going to read one more, one more part. This first week of Esther is kind of the toughest to speak because you've got to get all the context. You've got to get all the information before you can kind of get to all the takeaways. But Esther chapter 2. Verse 1, this is what it says. It says, Later, when King Xerxes' anger had cooled and he was having second thoughts about what Vashti had done and what he had ordered uh, against her, he's, he's lonely, right? The king's, young, uh, the king's young attendant stepped in and got the ball rolling. Let's begin a search for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint officials in every province of the kingdom to bring every beautiful young virgin to the palace complex of Susa and to the harem uh, run by Haggai. The, king, uh, the king's eunuch who oversees the women. He will put them through their beauty treatments. Then let the girl who best pleases the king be made queen in place of Vashti. The king liked this advice. What a shocker. And took it. Now, there was a Jew who lived in the palace complex in Susa. His name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. His ancestors had been taken from Jerusalem with the exiles. Remember when they conquered the city, burned it down, and killed the... right. So Mordecai's great-great-grandfather had been taken. And so now he's living in Susa. All right? And Mordecai had reared his cousin, Hadassah, otherwise known as Esther, since she had no father or mother. The girl had a good figure and was beautiful in the face. After her parents died, Mordecai had adopted her. When the king's orders had been publicly posted, many young girls were brought to the palace complex of Susa and given over to Haggai, who was overseer of the women. Esther was among them. Haggai liked Esther and took a special, special interest in her. Right off, he started her beauty treatments, ordered special food, assigned her seven imperson, uh, personal maids from the palace, and put her and her maids in the best rooms in the harem. Esther didn't say anything about her family and racial background because Mordecai had told her not to. So let me kind of just summarize these ten verses, and then we'll wrap it up. 
Now, there was nothing good or, or noble about Xerxes' idea to find a wife. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's like a God idea, right? Even though this may have been a God idea. Anyway, uh, it was as womanizing as it feels. Completely womanizing. But there's also a really powerful truth to be taken from this part of the story. That even when leaders and the rulers that we serve under make awful decisions, and even when God allows those bad decisions to impact people in negative ways, he is still working providentially and orchestrating his best for his people, right? This was not the first time that a ruler um, had made a terrible decision in the midst of God working. You remember Pharaoh in the book of Exodus didn't like how many Jews were being born uh, and how rapidly they were growing. And so he decided to kill every baby um, under the age of two. Or No, that was Jesus. He decided to kill every baby, excuse me. And so um, he, they sent out word to start killing babies. What a terrible decision. What an awful thing to do. Definitely not God-inspired. Uh, definitely wrong from the rulers that are serving over these Jewish people who are held by the Egyptians. But guess what happens? God is working providentially behind the scenes for his best, for his people. And out of fear that her child may be killed, she puts Moses in a basket. A mom puts Moses in a basket. And eventually what's going to end up happening is that Moses is going to end up in Pharaoh's home all because babies were being killed. Could there have been a better way? I'm sure. Did it hurt? Was it painful? Were there tears? Absolutely. But even when things seem disastrous and rulers seem unfair and decisions that are made seem completely anti-God, God is still working behind the scenes, providentially, working on his best for his people, right? Now, the author of, of Esther gives us no indication of whether Esther was excited about this opportunity or terrified. We don't know if she hated breaking all her law, Jewish laws, or if she loved it because she's been waiting to get out of the house and, you know, test out her wild side. Mordecai was giving her a curfew, and maybe now she's excited. We don't know. We have no idea. She may not have said anything about her Jewish background because she was just scared. Or she may not have said anything because she was incredibly strategic. We have no idea, right? We know that a few years earlier, Daniel decided not to blend in. The story of Daniel where he gets, he's under Babylonian rule, same time period, same group of people. He decides he's not going to break his Jewish laws. He speaks up and God blesses that and he becomes very powerful ruler in the time and in the, in the land. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did the same thing, right? And God blessed the fact that they didn't blend in, that they stood up. But that doesn't mean that it's the only way. Because we also see in this story that Esther doesn't do that. Esther does the exact opposite of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And God's going to bless it. There's not one way that it has to be done, right? Esther doesn't speak up on purpose. She blends in. She blends in. Her way is not more right or more wrong than Daniel. It's just what it is. And listen, God uses different kinds of people in different kinds of scenarios. He uses bold people and he uses shy people. He uses confident and scared people. He uses Christians who are on fire for Jesus and he uses people who have backslidden. He used Rahab when she was actively involved in prostitution and he used Samuel who grew up sleeping by the Ark of the Covenant. Right? So we don't know we don't know who or why or how or if there's a formula. We just know that God is working. And he uses all kinds of people in all kinds of scenarios. And so that's where we're going to stop the story today. Esther chapter 2, verses 1 and 10. And we're going to 
kind of pick up. We're gonna actually going to be doing this six weeks. But we, I wanted to take this first week to kind of give you all this context and all this history and kind of all this feel to set up where we are. Because now we have uh, Esther and Mordecai in the palace. Esther has been taken into a beauty contest where the person who sleeps with the king the best will be the winner. They're living in a place that is not their home, so to speak. They're viewed as second-class citizens by the Jews who are living in Jerusalem. And it seems like that there's chaos and awful decisions being made by rulers and everything's going wrong. But God is providentially working for his best. And so we can't be sure of motives and character and everything that's happening. But we can be sure of, 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 of two things that I want to give you very quickly that we can just take away from this story. The first one is this, is that there can be value in staying quiet when others think you should speak up. There can be value. If we can take anything away from Esther 1 and the first part of Esther 2, that there can be value in staying quiet when others think you should speak up. If Christians are negatively associated with anything, it's probably that we can be annoyingly loud about our beliefs and our issues, right? We do this because we believe in our message. And we believe that everyone should know what we know. But unfortunately, somehow that desire has turned into us being annoying too often. To the point that when you're on an airplane or you're at your job and, you know, people ask me, hey, what do you do? It's like, do I tell them I'm a preacher? Do I tell them I'm a preacher? I don't know, right? Because of all the associations that come with it, right? We've somehow lost our ability to pick our spots and recognize the right and wrong times to speak. And everybody, I think, knows this, but can I just throw this out there? Like, the funeral of a fallen soldier, wrong time to speak. Right? There, the, the point is not to be the loudest or the most noticed, when that can also mean being the most crude or annoying. Esther shows us that sometimes waiting provides us with more influence and more platform to create the change we want to create. I'm not encouraging us to not be salt or not be light like Jesus told us to be. I'm talking about living in such a way that people want to hear what we have to say. If Esther had taken a stand in chapter 2, it would have been only good for Esther and Mordecai who would have thought, yes, we took a stand, good job. They would have never gotten to the king. She would have never had the platform, and she wouldn't have saved anybody. She just would have been proud that she took a stand. And maybe that would have been God's plan for her life. I don't know. But she could have never gotten the audience that she's going to get in Esther chapter 5. And I'm also not saying that we should never speak up. Because for all of us, there will come times when we need to speak. And we're going to find that out in, uh, in two more weeks. We're going to find out that there are times when you need to speak. And if you don't, you're going against what God has for your life. Even if we're afraid, we got to speak up. So what does this look like for us? Like we're talking practically here, Jason. You give me a lot of Jewish history here, but I mean, what can I do with this? What does this look like? Well, how could you gain more influence at work? How could you gain more influence at your job? Would it require less talking about politics? Would it require less talking about how stupid Obama is? Would it require us going out with the people that we work with to the restaurants or the bars that they go to? I don't know. But what if you decided, what if we decided for the next six months or year 
that we were going to become the best employee and friend to the people in our office by whatever means necessary. Do you think that a year from now, after you've gained that influence, that your words might create more change than if you just post a Facebook wallpaper? Is it possible? I think so. Or what about if you're married to a husband who hates church and who hates God? Is the best course of action to keep nagging or to keep fighting with them? What if you determine for the next three months you are going to serve him like never before, give him the best sex he's ever had? Do you think that in the next three months after that's over, that maybe the conversation you would have for him about church and God, maybe he would be willing to listen or maybe, maybe just hear you out a little bit more instead of tuning you out? Because you've won some favor, some some platforms, some influence. Jason, you say, Jason, that's the most disgusting thing I've ever heard, and you don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. But I do know that Esther teaches us that sometimes there's value in staying quiet. When you feel like, or other ones around you feel like, maybe you should speak up. Maybe staying quiet a little bit longer, working a little bit harder, blending in a little bit more. Maybe it gains us a little bit more influence with God's help and God's providence. So that when we do speak, it creates major change. It's time for some of you in the room to be quiet. You aren't effective because you're too loud and you're too annoying. And I love you, but no one cares what you think. We already know what you think. You don't even have to tell us. We we know what you think, right? Invest more. Speak less. And see if God doesn't give you some influence. It's time for others of you to speak up. You know your heart, and you know you aren't blending in out of some strategic desire to reach people for Jesus. You're just scared or embarrassed, and you're staying quiet. And you know that you were supposed to speak up a long time ago, but you haven't done it yet. Pray for courage. Do it scared. Speak up. Speak up. Sometimes there can be value in staying quiet when others think you should speak up. And then the last thing that we can take away from the first part of Esther is just that God is working in all the details even when he seems absent. And we've kind of talked about this, but man, this, this, this beginning of this story is just its chaotic. And we don't know, but, but maybe Esther feels like her life is over. Maybe she feels like she's never going to be able to find that guy, fall in love, and have a family now. That she's going to get one shot to impress the king, and if not, she's going to live in the harem for the rest of her life and have no existence. Maybe Mordecai feels like he's losing his cousin, who he was responsible for. Maybe they think that God is punishing them again because of the promise he made back to Solomon. It just feels like everything is chaotic, and every, nothing is working, and everything's falling out of place. And Right? God's, they haven't heard a word from God. There's, no, there's nothing we don't, it's just he seems absent. God is working in the details. Your life feels gray. Your life feels unspiritual. And you just, it just seems like nothing's really happening. What if God is working the details step by step? It's going gonna, it's gonna to take about four years for one day Esther to speak up and realize the kind of power and influence that she has to change the course of history forever. God is not absent. He's working behind the scenes. Let's pray.
God, I, I pray that this would be a church of influence. That we would not be known as the people or the church that you don't want to be associated with because of their annoying uh, opinions. But that God, somehow, that this would be a place of influence. A, uh, a church full of people that somehow spiritually blend into the culture around them as ambassadors living somewhere else. Not compromising. God, you told us to be salt and light, but maybe we could do that with our lives. Maybe we could do that with our effort and our work and our friendships so that when the time is right, you can do something amazing with what we do with the platform you've given us. So God, help us to figure out and deal with that tension of that gray blending in stuff in life and society and when to speak up and when not to speak up, God. Well, everybody's heads are bowed and nobody's looking around. If you're here today and you would say, uh, you say, Jason, you've been talking and you gave me a lot of information and I don't even know really what to do with all that, but I do know that while you've been talking, I just feel like that God's been knocking on my heart and that maybe it's time to, to give my life to him, to become a Christian. The Bible says that Jesus went to the cross. He died for our sins because we otherwise would have no way to know God. We're sinful people. And, um, and so he went to the cross and he died for our sins. And so now we can come to God and say, God, I, wanna, I need you to save me. And because Jesus died on the cross, we can be saved because of what he did, because of the grace that he showed. And so if you're here today, nobody's looking around but me. And if you're here, we're not going to embarrass you, make you stand up, come down front. But if you're here and you would say, Jason, I just... You know, I would like to give my life to Christ. I want to follow Jesus today. I want to, I want to put my trust in him and not stop living for me and stop doing it my way. If that's you, would you just lift your hand and make eye contact with me? If you'd say, man, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to live for him. Put my trust in him. Maybe, maybe I used to, but I kind of fell away, but now I'm back and I'm ready to do this. Anybody else? Just a few more seconds. God, I pray that we'd, we'd have influence. Give us influence, God, because we excel in the culture that is around us. Not living for this world, God, but blending in and, and excelling so that there could be some influence to maybe speak up and make a difference in people's lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.